Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a new podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We'll be talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better, for the worse, or still to be determined as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In this episode, we're taking a look at doing business in post-pandemic California. The Golden State has historically been on the list of worst places to do business in the U.S. due to its high taxes, multiple fees, and lots of bureaucratic red tape. And the pandemic hasn't helped matters at all. 13 months of statewide shutdowns have meant shuttered doors and bankruptcies for businesses in all types of industries. And the exodus of companies leaving California for other states seems to have accelerated. Governor Gavin Newsom has promised that the state will be fully open for business by June 15th if all goes well. But how many businesses will make it to that date? And will they be able to recover and thrive in a post-pandemic economy? We're talking to two CEOs in industries that were hit hardest by California's shutdowns. Dustin Lancaster is the founder of An East Side Establishment, the umbrella company for a group of restaurants, bars, and hotels in Los Angeles. Francesca Schuler is the CEO of InShape Health Clubs, which operates fitness centers all over the state. Listen in as they talk about running their companies during the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the battles they've fought, the lessons they've learned, and whether it can ever go back to business as usual in California. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Richardson, and I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers. Welcome to our latest episode of This Changes Everything, and thanks for tuning in. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at the post-pandemic future of doing business in California. So two industries that have been really hit hard by the past 13 months of statewide shutdowns are the hospitality industry and the fitness industry. More specifically, that means restaurants and bars and gyms and fitness centers. Those businesses have not been able to operate at full capacity during the shutdown, and for many months, they've had to keep their doors closed and run their operations outside. I'm sure many of you are used to quote-unquote dining out, literally, on the patios that restaurants have built quickly on their sidewalks and their parking lots, and you're now used to working out al fresco on the equipment at your gym or fitness club, which is great in this lovely spring weather. It wasn't so great for those 7 a.m. workouts back in January. And it hasn't been great for many business owners and CEOs in California either. Today, I'm talking with two of those business owners and operators who have had to make some very tough decisions in the past year, and they have been very vocal and very forthright about what the impact of those decisions will do to California businesses overall, the state economies, to workers, and to customers like you and me. So I want to introduce them here. First, we have Dustin Lancaster. He is the founder and president of an East Side Establishment, and that comprises a group of 10 restaurants, bars, and hotels in Los Angeles, mostly on the east side of LA. And also Francesca Schuler, CEO of InShape Health Clubs, which is headquartered in Stockton and runs 44 fitness centers around California. 
Francesca also helped to organize last year the California Fitness Alliance, which is made up of 350 uh, fitness operators that represents about 60% of the fitness centers statewide. And they've taken a stand against the state shutdown and reopening rules for gyms and fitness centers. They even filed a lawsuit against Governor Gavin Newsom and some public health officials last September over the restrictions on working out indoors. So Dustin and Francesca, thank you both for joining me today. I want to start off by asking you where you are now, where you and your businesses are now, 13 months after the shutdown started. And what are the toughest decisions, a couple at least, of the many tough decisions you've had to make since then to be where you are today? So Dustin, let me start with you. Uh, 13 months since shutdown, what are a couple of the toughest decisions you've made um, and where have they put you today? Well, thanks for having me on, Vanessa. Uh, let's dive right in. So things 13 months later are looking better. That's the that's the first and foremost. We can say we are back open. <laughs> all, all of my every, well, not the ones I lost, but the ones that made it are back open. Uh, people are coming out and enjoying them. So we have 50% indoor uh, dining in Los Angeles, not for bars, just for restaurants. Bars now are still outside only uh, with food. Um, music venues uh, are not, which I, I did previously own, are not open uh, yet. Uh, hotels are and ho hotels are bouncing back because people are traveling. So things are, for the first time in a year, looking better. It uh, doesn't mean we don't have a long way to go, but I think the fear of losing my businesses has somewhat dissipated. So now I can focus on what it means to sort of come back and how to do it safely and protect our employees and protect our customers. So now all of the focus and sort of uh, anxiety of being closed is now shifted to how do we do this and it, it, can we make this a viable business model, right? Is, is, are these numbers, are the sales we're doing enough to actually make a restaurant work? And uh, right now that's sort of remains to be seen. I mean, I, I'd say probably not if it stays as it is, but we know it's getting a little better. We see every week our sales are sort of inching up three or 5% every week. So as we continue to open up and emerge out of this, I, I am hopeful that there is um, there are good times ahead for a, a lot of our uh, businesses. And up top, I had said that you own, or an Eastside establishment owns 10 restaurants, bars, and hotels. Yep. Was What was the number before the pandemic shut down? And will that number go back up? Is it possible? Or are some of these establishments, you know, closed? Gone for, for good. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, some of them are gone for good. So three, so I had 13 um, prior to, to, to COVID. Uh, one was a, a hotel that was brand new, uh, nine months old, and uh, it's just too new, had too much debt load to sort of, and the rent was too much to sort of come out of it on the backside. And it was um, only about Four or five months into it, I knew this was this was trouble. One was a music venue. I don't know how, as a nationwide, maybe even globally, I don't know how music venues are going to do this. Uh, in, innately, you have to gather a lot of people inside to watch performances. No, no music venue. I don't care if it's a hundred person or ten thousand. 25% occupancy, 50% occupancy is not going to work. You only you only make m money in venues at them being 100% occupancy. It's it's you know that that's it. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've lost a few of them. 
but I, I would consider myself lucky statewide in California, uh, independent, you know, you know, restaurant coalitions, uh, things like that. We're, they're putting the number about 40 percent. Uh, when this is all said and done, that 40% of, of bars and restaurants will not make it um, when we get to the end of this. So if I, you know, if I lost, you know, sort of three out of 13, I guess, statistically, I'm doing a little better than most, if you want to call it that, unfortunately. And Francesca, same question for you. Uh, 13 months in, uh, where where does InShape stand and what tough decisions or at least pick a couple of the tough decisions that you made um, to keep your to keep the business afloat. Uh, well, we I am also optimistic about the future. We just opened our last group of clubs last Thursday, so it's been. We started. Um, last March before closing down was 65 clubs. We are now reopening with 44 clubs. Um, the good news is I think the uh, focus on health is going to be something. And really, you couldn't do outdoor at all clubs. And so we had a small percentage open kind of earlier this year, but really no revenue for over a year is the best way to think about it. Almost no revenue for a year. Um, so with that came, you know, heartbreaking people to see, you know, incredibly dedicated, amazing team. And we weren't able to, you know, offer them employment during this past year. The good news is we're getting a lot of them back, which is great. We had to go through a restructuring process, so we did file Chapter 11, and we emerged with a great new ownership group and ready and poised to make it through the future. Good deal. Well, that's 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 good news. That is good news. But I'm sure there's a plenty of plenty of tough stuff, and that's what I want to ask you about now. What you're facing going forward. Um, one thing I did want to ask why I why I brought you two on here today for this conversation is because, like I said, you two have been very forthright and uh, very you know vocal and on social media about what your businesses are facing. Uh, Francesca, you uh, with the California Fitness Alliance and the lawsuit, and Dustin, you've been uh, you've written a lot of uh, uh, commentary on social media, and and so I, that's what struck me was just I got a really good sense of what you're facing. Um, I was wondering, because a lot of businesses have said the same thing, it's just like California often has these random arbitrary uh, rules for shutdown, opening up in the pandemic, and, and, and they're facing the brunt. I was wondering if you have gotten help or you've had conversations with uh, state officials, local government officials about help, um, and if... If if those convers if they had reached out to you, and if they have, what had those conversations resulted in, if anything? Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here. I mean, I haven't. Um, so so statewide beyond no, no no. The quick answer is not statewide. I mean, I think beyond sort of federal run, you know, PPP um, stuff like that. Yes, but 
citywide, my council members have been good, uh, very much reaching out to me uh, and, and seeing what we need sort of citywide on that level. Um, they helped get uh, a lot of my restaurant teams vaccinated when that was available. Uh, they, they sort of always were very constantly letting us know when grants became available for the city of Los Angeles. And we received some of those at some of the places. So for that, um, I can speak just locally. I think they did a good job statewide. I, you know, didn't hear any sort of broad statewide programs you know, for a little bit for, for restaurants, but it was also very complicated. So, um, it, it, yeah, I can't, I, 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 I'm happy on a city level, I guess I should say from my, my local councilman. Francesca, what about you? Since you have so many businesses around the state. Yeah, we're in 18 counties. So, um, so, um, couple of things for the fitness industry. We were not eligible for any federal relief um, anybody who has more than kind of one or two locations in the fitness industry was not eligible for PPP, unlike restaurants and many others. And that has to do with where um, gyms and fitness centers are classified in uh, by the Small Business Administration. So we received no aid, as nor did most of my um, fellow operators. Um, in every industry. That's impossible. So we wanted to be a partner with them and have conversation and collaborate. So and essentially we did not talk to anybody from public health despite really amazing, and actually some of our legislature as well. Um, we were, for us, it's been really frustrating. It's been, there's no, there's been zero dialogue or partnership with public health. Um, we're in the health business, so we just want to at least have a conversation and how can we make sure what's now emerging as the new pandemic, which is the inertia that we've gone under. I mean, if you look at the people that have died from COVID, the comorbidities have to do with chronic illnesses that exercise is a key part of treating. So it's been a, um, it's been a lesson in politics and lobbying and advocacy that I never wanted. <laughs> but like I said, our goal is to still, number one, to be a partner with public health. We are in the health business and we are committed to a healthy California. So we hope at some point we will get the partnership that we're seeking. So now, uh, changing the business overall, because you've had to, uh, I wanted to ask you, how have you changed your, if you have, your business structure overall and the way you run your overall business? And then I guess the way each of your individual establishment runs and looks. Uh, I, I asked this from a, a customer point of view too, because, you know, I go to restaurants, I use my gym. So for people who will be entering or are entering now your restaurants and your fitness centers, what what will be different about the way they look uh, and about the way they'll be run, if anything? And it's a few notable things, maybe not everything. But uh, yeah, Dustin, like if I walk into uh, one of the restaurants now, um, how is it look? Uh, how is it run differently than it was uh, before March of 2020? Well, the first thing you'll notice is outdoor dining is the sort of predominant uh, seating structure in Los Angeles. So it's 
always been a bit of a head scratcher to me that a that a place places in Southern California with kind of the best weather, some of the best weather in the country, have not had an abundance of outdoor seating, and that's because at the sort of city and state level, they don't like a lot of outdoor. I would probably say it has to do more with outdoor drinking than it does with outdoor dining. But that even if you're an adult and you have a dinner, a table outside, you want to have a glass of wine, they consider that drinking. So therefore, the ABC steps in and then there's a lot more rules. Now, what was impressive is that when they sort of went this alfresco initiative, the ABC granted everybody outdoor dining like that. So we know that when they needed to, they were able to sort of enact this very quickly, and they and I commend them for doing it. But I I do wonder how we're going to put that cat back in the bag. So the first thing you're going to see is everything is is seated mostly outdoors. When you come inside, some of my spaces are small; it could be a thousand, you know, less than two thousand square feet inside. So sitting people six or eight feet apart, you're not going to get a lot of bodies in there. So the, so the energy is changes in a restaurant when it's not full of people. The sound is differently. The music is quieter. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think that that physically, I love the outdoor component, but I, I think indoor is going to be changed for a while. Uh, the feeling of, of, of coming indoors and, and, and dining we're doing more with less people. That is what you have to do is, is find a way to do more with less people. But that also means right now we're working twice as hard for half as much sales, right? So the staff are being asked to do stuff, be it with masks and wiping down. They're having to do twice as many things as they used to do besides taking orders or running food or, or hosting. But now they're doing it with physical barriers in the way and it actually takes a emotional and mental toll to have to be consciously aware of that the entire time. And that fatigue, I see it on them at the end of shifts and, and, and throughout the, the uh, throughout the night, because it is truly at least twice as hard, but yet we're doing half the sales that we did previously. Um, so those are the sort of the sort of the physical things you might see if you were to come in. Um, but uh, other than that, it's not, you know, the food is, the thing is the, the coming out, the product is the same. It really is. Um, so, you know, that, those, are, those are the big differences, I, I think, in our restaurants. And actually, I think there's a couple questions that I know a lot of people are asking uh, to-go cocktails. I'm not, I know that's, uh, that's up here in Northern California where I'm located. Will that still be the case, do you think? And then also fine dining, will that still uh, be around? Will that come back? Because it does seem like, um, you know, uh, people are going, you know, Grubhub and Postmates. Uh, will they get sick and tired of that? Will they want to go back to fine dining? Or is that that changed forever, or at least for the medium term? So, yeah, so I'll answer the, the, the cocktails. The, the to-go thing. When, when the ABC sort of said, if you have a beer and wine license or you can sell it all to go, or if you had a liquor license, you, just, you could sort of bottle cocktails to go. I, I think it's going to go for a while. I don't see that they can let it go, you know, just sort of forever because it, 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 it is, you do have to have a bit of checks and balances of who's selling what to go. So I, I think that it's, they're going to put an end to the to-go component at a certain point. I have no idea how how long in the future that's going to be, but I would my guess, knowing them, they're a bit more conservative about alcohol. I think it will probably be sooner than later uh, as we open up these tiers, or maybe you know, if we listen to Newsom and says we're sort of going to be open by Fourth of July, maybe as soon as that. 
if we're 100% open, I think that they were 100. I don't know what 100% open means anymore, but that was quotes I'm giving 100% open. Um, uh, and the, the 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 second question. Um, oh, about okay, fine di- the, fine dining. I, oh, I fine dining. yeah. I, you know, so I, I I do agree with you in that I think fast casual people are a little burnt out on it. I, my, you know, myself included. And I own fast casual concepts as well. It's just that that's what we've had predominantly for a year. So I do think that people that some of my finer dinings, I don't own any true fine dinings, but like my oyster bar per, per se is, is, is a bit, you know, uh, more of a higher ticket average place. And it's really, really busy right now because I think people wanted things that you can't make at home, right? It, which is oysters. There's, there's lots of rolls, there's crab cakes, there's these dishes that are a little more complex. So I, that is what people are craving because they haven't been able to have that. I was asked about a month ago by Eater LA, which, you know, there's Eaters, uh, you know, in, in Sacramento and San Francisco as well. Right, it's a review um, it's, website. Correct. I was, I was asked by the editor about what I thought about the sort of future of how restaurants are going to back. And I do think the fine dining sector might be the hardest to bounce back. It takes a lot of labor. It takes a lot of, you know, there's very small things that have to happen for fine dining. And it takes a lot of staff just to, to enact that. So, in a, in, a, in an industry where your margins were already pretty tough, they got you know just obliterated by COVID. I, I think it's going to be a harder thing. I think people are going to pivot away from fine dining. Is ultimately what I told them. And I told them I have no interest at all in going towards that idea of a of a sort of traditional restaurant because I, I think that we were already in a very tricky place as far as you know margins go and being able to to run it as a sort of profitable profitable and viable business that. I don't know that people are going to be that incentivized to go back to that because I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze at the end of the day. I think you're going to have to work incredibly hard for something that may do only better than slightly break even. And that is just a lot of work if you were running on a you know, 5% return and you have a restaurant that has to turn out $2 million. I, I just don't know that a, a, a $100,000 net profit and that's if nothing goes wrong, right? And and that's if, and then restaurants are famous for things breaking down. So if your AC goes out, there's 10, 15 grand. If your hood or blower or all of these things that break, each of those things throughout the year costs these tens of thousands of dollars, which eat into that profit. I was just meaning if you're running in a great, you know, best case scenario, uh, 5% return on that, which I think is probably where the sort of higher end of like somewhere between middle, you know, mid dining to finer dining is. Francesca, what about you and the InShape Health Clubs and also, you know, the, the members of the Fitness Alliance? What what are what are their establishments going to look like? How are they going to be run differently if they will be uh, going forward? What do you see as changes? Yeah, great question. I think there's a kind of a short term and a long term. So let me start with the long term. I think the short term is going to be very driven by, you know, state restrictions, where we are in vaccine rollouts, things like wearing masks, et cetera. I don't think we're going to be wearing masks in the gym forever, but obviously you know, until there's a certain amount of vaccinations, et cetera. But longer term, I think there's been a lot of really good things that have come out of this. Um, at least that's the way we're looking at it. I think specifically for InShape, we accelerated some of the things we were planning to do from a digital standpoint, including we've added a digital platform. We put in a reservation system um, to manage capacity, but now it actually is a great member experience. We are doing more with less. I echo what Dustin said there. 100%, but we've tried to use technology to 
make it so the burden isn't too high on our team. So we've been able to kind of automate certain things and the team members can really focus on the member experience. Um, so those are just some examples where we've really tried to leverage technology to create a better experience, um, but also a more efficient experience. And then really creating more ways for people to work out. So digital Outdoor, I mean, I love an outdoor cycle class. Now, I'm not sure I'll ever cycle in a, inside a spin studio again. Uh, and that's just me personally, but other people can't wait to get inside. So we're going to be offering both options. So what I love is for us, it's been um, we're going to be offering more ways to exercise for our members uh, versus less. So that's a good thing. I think as far as the industry goes, many are making similar changes that we have. Um, I think we've all taken a look at spacing of equipment, et cetera, you know, we wanted to socially distance, but it is a more pleasant experience if you're not rubbing elbows to the person on the treadmill next to you. So I think we'll probably stick with that a little bit, um, you know, just making sure we space our clubs out. Honestly, the, the fitness industry has been really focused on cleanliness. You know, it's a industry where there's pe- a lot of people in and out. So filtration systems, cleanliness has been a priority. For those that it may not have been a priority, they've obviously now focused on it. We've always prided ourselves on a high degree of cleanliness. So for us, it's just continuing to really lean into that. Um, I think what you are going to see, though, is um, more consistency across fitness centers. We're working together on standards, which we didn't in the past. That's been one of the big wins for us. I think colla- we're a very competitive industry, and we're now collaborating a lot more on best practices. So I view that as a plus and would love to see us get to um, you know, some standards, which a lot of industries do have. The restaurant industry, I think, has a lot more certifications and things you have to get to run a, 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 um, a location than even the fitness industry does. And at the CFA, we're talking about a kind of safe gym pledge and a way of doing business that will give members a sense of confidence when they come. So we're working on that um, as well. And I think the um, I think what has not changed, which I think is important to call out, is the feeling of community. I think there is a big misperception that Fitness is about, you know, vanity or performance. And while that may be some headlines, a huge part of it's just about community and health. And I, as we've seen people come back to the clubs, it's been heartwarming to see people see their friends, see our members. And I see that continuing and honestly accelerating as people work remotely a lot more. They're going to need to find ways to connect with coworkers and others. And I definitely see the fitness industry playing a big part in that. We're already doing things where companies are reaching out to us to say, hey, can we have like a wellness afternoon and take a class and have our team see each other? So I think there's going to be some really interesting, maybe I wouldn't say blurring of the lines, but collaboration between this new virtual workplace and places where you can create community like a a fitness center. And we can be that third place where people can connect and gather, but then go back to their home offices, but um, take a minute for their mental and physical health. Um, short term, I think it's going to vary by county. You know, we are mandating masks internally. We believe strongly until we are, um, you know, in a safe place from a vaccine standpoint, that is critical. Um, we do temperature checks. Um, so I think the specific tactics within a facility will be very driven by the county and the state regulations. But I think the long term is going to be more options inside, outside, online, more community and more collaboration in terms of using exercise as a way to connect and help people balance their mental and physical health. Um, And definitely kind of more use of technology and the experience, self-service, et cetera. But 
still relying heavily on great instructors and, and great team members. So I would say overall positive, I think, a lot, lot more to come. So we're, uh, we definitely have a renewed sense of purpose, I think, for us at, at InShape for sure. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud. That's at soundcloud.com slash Groundbreakers, Or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of This Changes Everything, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. So I think one good thing about California is we have this great weather. Uh, I personally enjoy the outdoor dining at restaurants. I do enjoy the outdoor workouts at my gyms. Uh, so that's one thing we we have uh, here in California, which is great. But I do know that California has historically had that reputation of being a tough place to do business. A lot of taxes, a lot of laws, a lot of uh, fees uh, for businesses. I, I know we, we just raised our, our minimum wage. Uh, I think it's $15 per hour for uh, companies Companies um, that have a certain number of employees, so you probably are in that, um, and there's others. So uh, it feels like I, that that reputation that California has is, uh, especially now with the pandemic on top of it, driving a lot of businesses away. You know, Texas has gotten a, a few big high-profile businesses. So um, I wanted to ask you both, what do you what do you want California government? Um, to be cognizant and aware of when it comes to uh, keeping small businesses here in the state and and keeping them growing and thriving, what they should what what should they be doing in your in your opinion? What should they be considering? Uh, Dustin, I'll start with you. Sure, I think. Uh, look, I'll speak about restaurants. I'm sure uh, Francesca's got her own set of of problems that are going to be very different than mine. But I can tell you that myself and my colleagues and peers, we, we talk about a lot of the same things, which are starting with a $15 minimum wage. So California is only one of seven states that does not give a tip consideration, which means that if you were to wait tables in 43 other states, but I'll just pick one, New York, let's say, if you ever did, I'm sure a lot of people have waited tables in some of these other states. I don't care if you're talking about Oklahoma or Alabama. They usually make somewhere, which is a sub-minimum wage, around like 2 3 or $4 an hour because they allow the tips to supplement that income to get over $15 an hour. California doesn't do that. So what that means is that as you move this up towards 15 a bartender, again, I'm going to speak in general terms here. Let's say a bartender at a nice restaurant in Los Angeles makes on average – uh, tips alone, let's just say tips alone, somewhere between fifty dollars to $70,000 in tips a year, working four or five days a week. Now you bump up $15 minimum wage, that is included. So the, so, so the whole point was to get a 
a lot of times it's a back of house kitchen worker, a, a, a dishwasher or a line cook that may be closer to that minimum wage number. The whole point was to raise that, the bottom right up. But what you've done is you still, you move the gap forward when you raise up the, 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 the tipped, you know, tipped employees as well. So it's a very restaurant specific thing, but all we've said is we do believe the minimum wage should be higher and should be at $15 an hour. But what we'd like is to you to give us a tip consideration so that a person who already makes a really decent living, better than decent living with tips, shouldn't also, the, the restaurant shouldn't be also the person having to supplement their income with that when it's not really needed, right? So that's a very specific restaurant thing that we have been talking about for a long time. We, you know, we were fighting this fight five years ago when we were talking about raising the minimum wage, just saying, please, could we include that in the legislation that says, could we have a tip consideration like the majority of other states in the United States do? So that, that, that's one. Secondly, I think that it's such an incredibly difficult place to do business, not, not because of all these rules, but on top of running your business, it's an incredibly litigious state. And I think that the courts at the higher court level, they have to find a way to, to, to knock out some of these ridiculous lawsuits that anyone can bring up, bring up to you. Right. And so, you know, so I, I know Francesca can probably relate because the sort of ADA lawsuit thing has, has gotten just so out of control that I know restaurants closing, you know, just because the, these things pile up and it, it becomes this, this thing where you go. And it's not saying we, I, we don't want to have ADA considerations, but a lot of time if you're going through, you know, plan check or building and safety, you, you, you know, we're, we're restructuring the entire way we have to permit and build and do all these things and do this for something that is, again, still a very small percentage of what what is accounting for your business model, right? And, and to, and to clarify, be, we should say American Disabilities Act, ADA, right? Sorry, That's yes. Referring to. Okay. yes, yes. And, it, and it's, I love that it should be considered, but I think that we're a little upside down in how it is the sort of leading deciding factor in how we're going about doing things, right? It is, and not to just mention that you have to currently update everything from your website to how your floor plans to how everything is can be accessed. And it doesn't mean, again, I don't want to sound like I'm against it because I'm not against any ADA sort of progressiveness. It's just that we are spending so much time and money on things that, that seem to me to be, it's just counterintuitive and counterproductive to what maybe the end game actually should be. So I think that, I think that if you want to have people want to stay and do business in California, I think we're going to have to start to figure out, is, is it worthwhile? Or um, can, you, can you do all this just to have everything sort of, you know, not make any money, have it taken away pretty quickly? And I, and I think that that's what a lot of people are struggling with right now, is that is, is this is the place that I want to do business? And, and as you said, I, I know many, many people that have up and moved during this pandemic to, I guess, what they see as greener pastures. And, and a lot of that is Texas. You know, I've, I've heard a, a lot of people move to Texas, you know, Charlotte, um, you know, I, I know a lot of places, yeah, Florida, that people are moving to, 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 to it's easier, easier to set up shop and, and to make a living. Francesca, what about you? Are you on your way out to Texas or are you going to stay and uh, fight the good fight? We are staying for sure. We are a California company and um, really committed to the Central Valley. And I'll talk about that in a second. 
Dustin stole my number one point, which is the litigious nature. Um, the heartbreaking part about the litigious nature of the state and is that it actually ends up um, rewarding people who are trying to cheat the system and not protecting the people that really need it. And that's, to me, the most frustrating thing as an employer, where you have to make a whole series of decisions in fear of one ambulance chasing lawyer suing you on some obscure thing that then results in you not being able to hire somebody who wants to work. I mean, we have 50% of our general managers are women. Many of our general managers are single parents. We did not lose one person during this pandemic. We kept them all employed despite no revenue for the majority of the year uh, because we felt strongly about it. Um, but we would be able to hire more people back if we didn't have to worry about the endless list of sort of lawsuits that are filed, in most cases completely frivolous, but you end up settling because you have no choice. And so I think that's one thing that needs to get looked at really um, with a strict lens in California is, is that. So Dustin could not agree with you more on that point. Um, I think the second thing is that I would love to see a stronger collaboration between kind of small and mid-sized businesses and um, our leadership, our, our elected officials and our legislature. A lot of the decisions, and we saw this a lot in COVID, were driven by public um, sector employees and their wishes where they never lose their job. Um, and so they were like, oh, we want to, you know, stay home, do this. And, and they were never going to lose their job. And, you know, I run a business where you have to go to the club. Like, there's no working from home. And so I'd love to see in the, there's a go biz that now D.D. Myers is heading up. Would love to see more representation from small and medium-sized businesses and, and, and communities like the Central Valley. I mean, the Central Valley is not just agricultural workers. That's a big part of it. But there's lots of businesses like ours. And I do think there is... There can be a San Francisco, Marin, L.A. County-centric lens on decision-making that, um, that misses a huge part of, in my opinion, what makes California great is a lot of our small and medium-sized businesses. And so I think we're asking, for me, it's collaboration and a willingness to look through multiple lenses. Uh, would, I think we could get to a great place. This is a phenomenal state uh, with so much potential and I think we've gotten a little sideways on the loudest voices, and I'd love to see better balance in that um, because I think we could end up being twice as strong as we are now if, if we were able to have more collaboration with different voices at the table. So my last question for you both is uh, about starting a business and, and keeping it going, because I, I think I just read an article uh, the other day about how the level of entrepreneurship or uh, I, I uh, and or the number of people applying for a business license uh, has gone up again here in California. So there are uh, entrepreneurs there who who want to get things going. Um, that just seems to be the California way, right? Always innovating and always moving forward. But I I wanted to get your advice for them. Uh, anyone who is running a small business and just trying their hardest to uh, to keep afloat, uh, and those individuals who want to start a business and are are doing it during a a really interesting time. Uh, I guess a, a couple tips of advice for uh, a current or aspiring business owner from your experience the past, especially this past thirteen months. Dustin, you want to start? Well, sure. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I too will continue to open businesses in California, right? This is, this is, I do truly, truly love this state and I love doing business here and I love the people here. And, and the, I think where there's a sort of shared uh, mentality that we have and, and pride that we have in California. And, and there will always be people 
you know, to, to, to fill those uh, empty, you know, spots, uh, retail spots, restaurant spots, gym spots, when, when things do close, there will always be somebody with an entrepreneurial spirit ready to jump in and, and, and try it. But I, it doesn't mean that they're going to make it, right? Especially if we talk about all the things that we have just sort of laid out, it, it's increasingly more difficult. So I think you do have to consider, you know, and one of the big things that I, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought, you know, we, we have this last thing is that, the real estate market has gotten so skewed in California that when you factor the labor plus rent uh, or mortgages, depending on what you're doing, but a lot of mine are, are, are rents, it, it is that makes it an unsustainable model as well. As well. So I think that we're going to have to figure out, um, I think that that's the one thing that's changed for me is talking to landlords in a different way and having a different conversation about how it can't just be them, no matter what, saying the rent's got to be paid, right? So I think that there's got to be more partnerships. I think that's what's going to happen. It's sort of um, whether that's percentage rent deals or structuring it somehow that it isn't that we sort of have a shared goal, which is if my business does well, you know, you sort of your building does well, and and we can sort of both benefit from this thing as opposed to, well, a lot of the thing I was getting, and some of you know the landlords are like, well. You know, we get it's COVID, but rent's supposed to be paid, which is just not a realistic thing. When I think, like, I don't have a business that can be open, so how can I pay rent? And I think that that's a conversation, a dialogue that needs to be pushed forward and changed so that the market doesn't keep going up and and landlords just get promised by brokers that, hey, I can I have somebody that can that'll come in and sign a lease. But because, like I said, it doesn't matter that they can sign a lease. Will they? Can they survive? And can this, or you're just going to the vicious cycle of closing and renting it out again keeps happening. So I think new operators are going to have clearly have to do their their homework. What I like to call you got to be a bit of a student of the game, which is you can't you can't just want to do this from the outside. I really think you need to to figure out the metrics and and study it like you would if you were in a class. If you were you know this is a full time thing that I I spend you know countless sleepless nights thinking about how I can do this better and how I can get them to perform better and how I can take care of, of my, you know, my, my, my people better, right. My, my customers and employees alike, how can we provide better experiences and uh, be more efficient? And th- this is an endless challenge that I push myself to. And I think all great operators do. And if you don't love it like that, you're probably not going to, you know, make it because it takes that sort of um, resolve. So I think that, yeah, you just got to make sure you're asking all the hard questions and, and, and make sure that California is where you want to do business and, and know the know the, the rules and laws and, and, and because it is not it is not that favorable to, to small business. So, um, you know, just just be smart. But I, I hope you I hope people still want to be here and do it because I like having good neighbors and, and, and colleagues and, and, and friends to do this with. Francesca, what about you? Final thoughts and advice? Um, yeah, final thoughts. I think one, definitely do your research and assume a worst case scenario, not just a best case scenario. Um, you know, I'm also married to an entrepreneur, so we've seen a broad range of things. And I think just being very fact based in your approach is important. Uh, I think no one could have predicted a pandemic. So, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. But I think just it's easy to be bullish on your idea when you're a passionate person as I am, and I'm sure Dustin is, and I think the or put together some advisors who will call you out when you're talking to yourself, 
who will bring resources that you may need. And this is if you're opening a restaurant, a gym, or a chain of things. Give yourself advisors who you trust, but who can help you be objective. I think that's essential. Um, I would also add, um, and I see many entrepreneurs try to do it on their own. So I think a board of advisors is really helpful. You know, pick your team wisely. We would never have survived this year without our team. And I'm sure Dustin feels the same way. So pick your team wisely. I think it's easy to want to okay, I'm going to hire this person because they're a little bit cheaper or mm, I want someone that looks just like me. You know, surround yourself with people who compliment you and make a few investments in some key people versus trying to save money on some others and lower your cost because it's those people that will weather the storm when you need to. I hope you don't have a storm as an entrepreneur, but uh, it does come and um, those are the people that will do battle with you when it's needed. And so I think a lot of, I see a lot of entrepreneurs shortchanging their hires in the interest of, quote, saving money. And I think that's the biggest mistake you can make. So those would be my three. Do your due diligence, put a board of advisors in place, and and hire smart. So good advice from both of you. Thank you, Francesca and Dustin, for joining us today. And uh, I'm glad that you're still around and businesses are, are doing well. Uh, don't move to Texas. Stick around. And uh, I've learned a lot. And uh, it's been a great discussion. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I hope everyone exercises and eats well. That's my advice for the day. (laughs) Amen. Good advice. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, Episode 4, which was recorded on April 19th, 2021. Thanks to Dustin Lancaster and Francesca Schuler for taking the time to talk with us. Also, thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce informative and inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. 